Last week, I made mention on the definition of what is submission. Um, as we're studying that out of the text of uh, what was just read for you, First uh, Peter 3, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And uh, of course, it's difficult, right, to describe, particularly as I've made mention several times in our cultural moment, talking about gender relations and how they are to operate in a marriage. And again, I made mention that submission for the wife, and then next week, uh, so we'll get through uh, six this week, just as Jim had just read for us, and we'll be talking about husbandry in verse seven next week. But again, for submission for the wife and authority for the husband look like something. Uh, what those particulars are is going to have to be worked out within your marriage, your constitutions, your skills, your gifts. Um, uh, again, what, what you're best at, personality types, how you decide to kind of maneuver that and uh, navigate your relationship together. But we do know that something has to exist. And that something is submission and that other thing is authority. And then at the end, I mentioned to you that they need to be visible within your marriage. And as we move forward then in the text this morning, we're given a little bit more of that visual. Peter provides us with a little bit more of what's observable about a, a, a godly wife. What's observable about it? And the elements of a godly wife who submits to what uh, uh, in this situation is an ungodly husband. Remember, that is a part of the dynamics. I'll, I'll give it away in case I'm rushing at the end. But I, I think that what's best understood about what is frightening in the end of uh, verse 6, uh, again, speaking of Abraham and Sarah, and then your connection, ladies, to Sarah, and the language of if you do good, we'll get to that, but then if you uh, are not frightened by something frightening, seems to be, again, if we could stay within the text, it seems to be something on behalf of the husband's behavior. Um, Again, I, I would not, I, I don't think here at all, nowhere else either or anywhere else either in the Bible condones any kind of um, spousal abuse. Just, no. It's not here condoned and it's not condoned anywhere else either. Um, and, and again, we would have to get off into the weeds to describe covenant abandonment and divorce and grounds for divorce and Christian marriage. And, and we'd have to kind of keep going with that. But what I would say to you here is what is frightening has something to belong to the unbelieving husband. Uh, again, it, it could be verbal uh, abuse. It could be, uh, again, a marginalization. It could be him restricting her from going to Christian service. Uh, whatever the elements are, I, I, I think within that text, that seems to be what we're dealing with of what is frightening. And, and, and Peter encourages you as godly women to not be frightened, um, but to maintain faith and hope in God as you navigate difficulty within your marriage. That seems to be what Peter is indicating. I want to jump back to the text, though, and let's work from the top to the bottom so that we can see, again, what is the visual or observable elements of a wife's submission. Notice the text in verse 3. Um, do not let your adorning uh, be external. Again, I, I, maybe I'll jump back up into one so we stay with the flow of thought. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, which, which again jumps down to there's something amiss with this husband. He's unbelieving. 
and, and he, he, he seems to be unkind if he tends to be unkind. So that even if some do not obey the word, uh, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So now he's going to describe this, this conduct. When, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, in, in fact, and he adds to this visible element as we're jumping in verse 3, do not let your adorning be external. And then he lists these elements, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But instead, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You see, what he's describing here in the visual of a godly wife. What do, we, what do we perceive or see about the wife's submission as a godly wife? What is the husband able to observe? Well, what's interesting, Peter says, is it's actually hidden. That's the irony of what's visible about a godly wife's submission. As others perhaps look on at this godly relation, this godly woman, as others look and observe for the godly woman, what is visual is not so visual. What I mean by that is Peter describes in the hidden person of the heart, you see, what is visible to the outward eye to a godly woman's submission toward her husband. And again, we, we don't know what exactly it would look like per marriage, per marital class unit relation. We don't know what that would look like, but what is observable of whatever it is, is this godly woman's point of aim. That is what is visible. That's what you'll perceive about her relation to her husband. You'll perceive something of her point of aim. What I mean by that is the reward for the godly wife is not communal recognition. It's not a carefully choreographed kind of activity. We already noticed that the husband perceives it's respectful and not manipulative. Do you notice something about this woman is she's incredibly free. She's not trying to get her husband to do something. He perceives that and is moved by it. And now we learn that there, the activity uh, is the hidden activity of the heart. She's not looking for your applause. The reward the return and the richness of the reward for this woman with this husband is God's promise. Flip over from 1 Peter, just go back just a little. I want to read um, uh, where this woman's motivation lies. She's well aligned. If you'll flip back just a few pages to Hebrews, uh, you'll just go back past James and then jump through Hebrews and land in chapter 11 if you would. Because this woman uh, is not, her godliness is not taking place in a vacuum. 
It's here in described of other believers who are similar. And there's an anchor point here in Hebrews 11 as well with Abraham. And Peter uses Abraham as well as you saw in the text in a few moments forward. Um, so I want to join in this to see the godly woman who is in this relation with her husband where her reward is resting. It's not in you applauding her behavior. Not that she's indifferent to those within her community, but that's not the spritz of energy she gets, is by communal recognition. It's not a play act, and it's not also a way in which, again, to coerce her husband without him knowing, and he perceives that. So when we gaze upon this woman's hidden behaviors of her heart, what is observable to us is that indeed, maybe it's overstated, but she does seem to be pursuing an audience of one. And we and the husband, those within the community, perceive this of her. And it's, it's a beauty that she possesses. If we jump, if you're there in Hebrews 6, I want you to see her motivation. Uh, look in verse 6 of chapter 11. Again, here we have what is called the Hall of Faith. I think many people label it because it kind of goes through these stories of, 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 of faith and how faith works and so forth. Um, verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God. Now, do pair this, again, I'm trying to pair this text with the godly woman of 1 Peter 3. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And furthermore, right, that he rewards. You, you must believe this. Godly faith, faith that terminates on Christ, is a faith that believes he rewards those who seek him. And then it kind of goes down through the text of, of some of these evidences in people's lives. I want you to jump to verse 13, though, as I can just simply summarize from verse 6. I think this is the woman's motivation of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Verse 13, these all died in faith. So, again, what does that mean? Well, they, not having received the things promised. Then how do they die in faith? They have seen them and greeted them from afar. You see, that, that's the piece of faith. And having acknowledged, and, and, and back to 1 Peter, this is a theme as well. Remember, it opens up in chapter 1, verse 1, about aliens and strangers. The godly woman of 1 Peter 3 is, is anchored here in this text. Again, uh, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, so too the gal of 1 Peter 3. For people who speak thus... Make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. This is what we perceive. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Think of the godly woman of 1 Peter 3. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared. For them, a city. 
Again, the crux of the matter, if you jump back to 1 Peter 3, the crux of the matter for the godly spouse, the godly wife described here in this text is that she knows she labors in her marriage under the sight of God. This much is clear because we'll jump down to the connection in just a moment, but look at the end of verse 4. In God's sight, this is very precious. A parallel to the slave or the servant up in chapter 2, verse at the end, the last statement of verse 20. In the sight of God. The godly wife knows that even when times are difficult, she serves in the sight of God. She is a woman who actively places her faith in God and believes that he is a rewarder of those who do so. She believes, according to Hebrews 6, that God rewards those who seek him. She is in this class, this relation of husband and wife together. And it seems to be that the husband could possibly be rather difficult. There's no indication that he specifically is. But, there's, but, but if he's unbelieving, which seems to be a clear situation here, uh, that, that there are unbelieving husbands. And some of the wives are beginning to convert and come to Christian worship there's, there's perceived challenges going back. And in going into this difficulty, she knows, number one, I labor in this class of relation to this man under the sight of God. He sees me. And I want to please him. And I know that as I pursue him, he rewards those who seek particularly uh, in the text here, what the godly wife seeks is what she believes is precious in his sight. So again, what is it within the text that God calls precious? Because God is setting the value scale, the hierarchy of goods to this godly wife. And so here's her husband. She relates to the husband Yes, because she's wed to him, but she does so not by motivations from him, but from God. So, so what would you, my greatest good, have for me in my interactions with him? Because indeed I want a, a, a wonderful marriage. I do, I want that reciprocity. But even if there isn't, I want to please you. This is how she's relating. And she relates this way because she believes that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And so God has labeled something for this godly woman, something that is very precious in his sight. And his sight is her concern. So what is it within the text that God calls precious? The answer that I would just give you in summary, and then we'll see it in the text, is a woman is precious in God's sight, a woman or a wife of inward beauty and virtue. This is what is precious in God's sight. Now again, let's draw your, Peter draws your attention to the cultivation of this inward virtue and beauty with an explicit prohibition. Notice verse 3, do not then let your adorning be external. And then he adds these elements that were on the ground there within the first century. The braiding of hair. Ladies, you know this. Not you ladies, as in Peter speaks to these ladies. The braiding of hair. The wearing of gold or the putting on of clothing. 
So again, the concern over the external adorning. Do not let your adorning be external. The, the concern for the external adorning is twofold. Number one, such adornments, the uh, elements of braided hair, long hair, braided, wearing of gold, which is obvious, and the putting on of clothing is not as in some clothing, but obviously high-value clothing. Such adornments were just that, highly valued in the world. That is, such outward elements were perceived by others as displays of prominence, wealth, and worth. Simply put, Peter wants to motivate the godly wife to set her sights on God's values, not on what society calls precious. Number two, as I said, the, the, the concern over the external adorning seems to be twofold. <clears throat> Secondly, such adornments were also viewed by many as instruments of seduction. Particularly, cosmetics were even viewed as an attempt to deceive and to lead others astray. Again, I, I don't think it's really hard to... Um, apply these in an updated fashion. I will go ahead and refrain from doing so. I'll simply leave it to you to meditate upon what seems to be an odd mixture, or an obvious mixture, I should say, of materialism and seduction. Peter urges godly women to avoid materialism and to avoid clothing of seduction. But as with all things, and you'll notice here in the text, um, as we pursue you and I, or the godly wife in this text, as we pursue um, Christ through faith in our Christian ethics and practice, um, many of us have been uh, wounded perhaps at times, uh, if you've grown up in the church or had different histories with the church, uh, a feeling that, again, that the, the, the legalism is always present. And it became kind of the pursuit was what we stayed away from, period. That was how we described the pursuit of Christ. You didn't, you don't, you can't. And so, so then, again, it kind of is that, that, that too tight of a squeeze. Uh, we lose the grounds for the pursuit because it's all about you don't, you can't, and you better not. So then it's all about what we're not doing. And we just miss that is never the point of the text. It's always what you're not doing because you're also pursuing. It's not avoiding certain things in order to purify yourself. It's in order to better your active pursuit through the faith. So also here, as with the law, it's not just what you avoid, but it's what you pursue. Notice verse 4 from prohibition of verse 3, don't do this, but instead, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Again, it's hidden. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which the godly wife learns is precious in God's sight. The woman who lives in faith, you ladies here, 
who indeed have gathered this Lord's Day, professed your faith in the Apostles' Creed. Indeed, we are his people. We believe this. That's why we're here. So again, the godly woman here at Redeemer this morning, who lives in faith, rightly understands that our beauty fades. She knows this. But she knows it in a moving manner that pushes her toward inward virtue. Because she knows inward virtue never fades. It's both beautiful and good. It's right. And it pleases God and her husband. We don't want to lose sight of the husband. Again, the man seemingly of unbelief is our situation of chapter 3. And this man is still moved and perhaps will be converted. Perhaps the possibility is there. This man of unbelief is moved by his wife. And it's not simply because she's beautiful on the outside. But 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 yes, perhaps, indeed, why not? But he perceives something different and deeper about her. There's There's a pursuit there of the inward person in the cultivation of virtue. Virtue is, I commit to you ladies, to lay to your conscience, as you do know and share with us all, virtue is an imperishable good. It's good, it's true, it's beautiful. It forever remains. You knew I was going to quote this text. It's an easy one to step into at this moment, but Proverbs 31. A text we've all discussed or read and referenced at some point in gender relations. I simply read Proverbs 31, verse 30 for you, though, because this this is still, it's anchored also to 1 Peter 3. I read it for you. Charm, Solomon's wisdom. Charm is deceitful. This is the element where Peter's like, stay away from the adornments that at this point in our moment in history is braiding of hair, the wearing of costly gold, and those fancy garments. Stay away from them. Why? Well, they're perceived by many to be charms. Elements of personal pomp and seduction. The godly woman She doesn't adorn her life with these things. She perceives as well, charm is deceitful. But there's another element Solomon draws attention to. Uh, For all of us, not just the ladies, for all of us. And beauty is vain. Meaning it's empty. But then he says, okay, so you have charm, this, this, this element that is deceiving. Beauty, that I'm warning you, it's vain because it fades. But the woman who fears the Lord, that gal is to be praised. So to Solomon, simply, she gets it. I do want to just mention just briefly as we proceed through the text. One time I was, uh, I think I was in high school 
And uh, I, was, he, I, I had heard a minister, I guess. He, he was speaking. And uh, he, he was going off the rails. I think it was because we were, uh, it was a gathering of teenagers. So that's what you do to teenagers. You've got to just go off the rails. Um, but I think we fail to think, even teenagers, like, they're pretty smart people. Might be immature, but they're not dumb. It, it, so we're just blustering and screaming and shouting about gender relations. This is what you do to teens. And, and as he was laying us low, he made mention, and I hope my daughter, because he had just had a little one, and she, I think maybe she was like one or she was a toddler or something. And as he really brought home the application to the vanity of beauty, he said, I hope my daughter's ugly. Um, that, that, and even then, again, here I'm, I, I'm 40, and I look back on that, and when I was reading this text and working through it, I thought of that. Like, that was a long time ago for me. And it's, I can see him right now, hoping his daughter is ugly. <laughs> again, it, it's, that, that's not the point. I knew it when I was 16. Surely we receive it now. That, that, like, that, that's, that was dumb to say that. It doesn't help. Again, it's not wrong. It's not a contrast. Either you fear the Lord or you're a pretty woman. It's not like, that's not the, the thing here. The, 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 the point is the point of aim. You're like, you'll know, ladies. Like, you'll know. I, 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 it's weird to even talk like this. But it, it, like, you'll know and let yourselves know when, when it's becoming too much for you. When you're trying too hard and trying to be something you're not. Whatever that is. We all have it. Maleness has their maleness things. Femaleness has their femaleness things. And it's awkward to talk cross-gender about it. I can't guide you in beauty tips. Why would I? It's not the point. The point is you'll know when that is your point. You'll know that. And you should take stock of that. Like recognize this thing is kind of getting out of hand for me. The reason why I do this is now kind of becoming weird. It, it, my impulses are wrong. My time spent is disproportionate. You'll figure that out. There's nothing wrong with feeling comfortable in your own skin and, and, and enjoying the beauty that God gave to each one. But there's a point of aim that is a bigger deal. That's Peter's point. I have to answer this question of the text because we, again, it's something specific. What does it mean to have or exercise a quiet and gentle spirit? You see here he says something very specific. It's imperishable beauty. That's the virtue. It's imperishable. But what is the virtue? It's a gentle and quiet spirit. So we have to ask the question and answer it somewhat. What is a quiet and gentle spirit? It looks like something is my answer. But, but... It's a little bit more particularized than that this time. It looks like something to God. And that is the point of aim for the godly woman of faith. He is her pursuit. It, it, I don't know what it would look like between uh, uh, you and your husband or you and your future husband as you cultivate the virtues as you look forward to marriage. Or, or, or I, I don't know what a gentle and quiet spirit would look like because some constitutions are, are, are a bit more like mine. 
they're a little bit louder. Is that like, oh man, that lady is. No, no. It's more than personality types. It's virtue, cultivation, habit. It's good. It's true. God sees it. And that is your point of aim. It's sincere. And your husband senses it. Again, he, God, is the object of the faithful obedience of the godly woman. She hopes, not in her husband, but she hopes in God and his reward. Um, again, if we were to say, well, say something more specific about quiet and gentleness. What does that look like? Debates rage. It can't because Peter says in the text, but let your adornment be in the hidden person of the heart. That's where the quiet and gentle spirit is. So we can't just run about labeling attitudes and actions. We see virtue, a faith that arises and rests on God and trusts in him to reward. Simply put, it's a disposition with attending actions. And those actions must attend or there isn't a true disposition. So it, it, it also walks it back from being something uh, uh, too ambiguous and undefined. It needs to be defined in your relations. It needs to be. Husbands, your authority needs to be defined. Wives, your submission needs to be defined in your relations, in that class of relation of your marriage. It can't be external, uh, or, or it can't be wholly internal with no external action accompanies it. Otherwise, it's not seen at all. Now, Peter grounds this entire discussion in what I'm going to say is covenant continuity. And what I mean by that is that Peter is going to ground the husband and uh, wife relation. And again, next week we'll discuss the husband. But he's going to ground the marital relation, the class of relationship of a husband and a wife, upon Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are a controlling type for the godly marriage. Notice the text, verse 5 and 6. For this is how, the, with the imperishable beauty, gentle and quiet spirit, precious in God's sight, knowing that, verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Uh, what do you mean? Well, by submitting to their husbands. And then he grounds it in, in a historical relationship as a controlling type for you and your husband to look to. Verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. And then he gives a specific language of, of that the, uh, a demonstration of the obedience. And it was this, calling him Lord. And then she adds the blessing, and you are her children. If you do good, like what? Like submit to your husbands. And do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, as we draw toward the end of our time in the text this morning, don't get lost in wondering if Sarah constantly referred to Abraham as Lord. Like, that, 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 that's it. We're going out of here, and we haven't defined leadership in the home very well, and, you know, I, I can't tell if you submit or not. Let's just start right here. Start calling me Lord. We'll just start there, and we'll work our way into it and see how it goes. It probably won't go well. If, if you start there, it won't probably progress in the way you're hoping. Um, don't get lost on that. 
Because if you look back at the text, again, he's taking, uh, you're in a class of relation, a hierarchical relation. A man and a woman come together in holy matrimony. There is a hierarchy in there. And then he says this, if you want to learn more about it, look over here in the covenant of God's people and find Abraham and Sarah. Therein, you will find a great platform for how you continue to behave. For instance... Sarah called Abraham Lord. It's not, therefore, call your husband Lord. The point is, if you look back at the text, it's Genesis 18. Uh, I'll give you the reference, 12, verse 12. Genesis 18, 12. You remember the situation therein, uh, uh, the, the uh, three angels, one being the Lord, appeared to Abraham and said, You're gonna have, uh, Sarah is going to have a child this time next year when I revisit you. And do you remember what Sarah did? You, of course you do. She laughed. And then the angel of the Lord says, Why did Sarah just laugh? And then she says, okay, so I'm old, I can't have kids, and my Lord, he's as old as I am. So it was in passing. It wasn't like every day I wake up and I just call Abraham Lord. That's how we get. Maybe, I don't know that that's not the case, but that's not the point of the case. There was no scandal for Sarah to call Abraham Lord. And there's no scandal for Peter to point it out. It's just the fact of it. The fact of your relation to your wife and your wife's relation to you is as unto Sarah and Abraham. She called him Lord, even if it was just in passing, because she acknowledged without scandal there was a relational marital hierarchy within their lives. And that was not a scandal to her. And it shouldn't be a scandal to us. I mean, my Lord is old. <gasps> what? How dare you? It wasn't a how dare you. It was just an acknowledgement, even if in passing, of a marital hierarchy. Simply put, Abraham, Sarah acknowledges Abraham is the head of the house. That, that, that's it. And it's an interesting uh, 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 type in that marital relation because you watch their episodes through the Abraham cycles of Abraham uh, Genesis around uh, 14 through 20, 21, 25 or something. Watch that and, and see how Abraham leads and uh, failure to do so and then takes uh, uh, Sarah's words. And Again, they had a marital relation, but there was always a hierarchy. The final instruction of the text is this, verse 6, again, uh, and Sarah obeyed Abraham. That's calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I mentioned this at the beginning, and I just will call, draw to a, a conclusion. The reference to something frightening seems to be addressing the unbelieving husband's behavior. It'll be a reminder in verse 7 of the godly husband, how he is to live with his wife. Again, to be clear, there is nothing here in this text or anywhere within the text of Scripture that even gestures towards sanctioning physical abuse between spouses. And we'll address that a little bit more as we speak of our husbandry next week. I have two comments in close. I, I wish you to hear them and, and lay them to conscience through this section of submission. Embodying, and I mean it, because again, it looks like something, and, and you've got to figure out that something, but it needs to be embodied. Embodying submission 
as true, good, and beautiful is a formidable task in our radically deconstructive <clears throat> and post-theistic culture. It's very hard. It's going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But on this matter of submission, Christians must not be intimidated by labels like hierarchy or patriarchy. I want to read that one more time, and I want to lay it to your conscience to think on it and meditate on it. From where I'm coming from, driven on, I hope, in a fair-minded and good faith from this text, Christians must not be intimidated by labels like hierarchy or patriarchy. While rightfully denouncing instances of hatred and any abuse, we should not be bullied into the falsehood that biblical marriages are problems. They are not. May God reward the godly and biblical marriage. He will. Do not be moved. Let us pray. Father, we do acknowledge the task of, of, of being godly husbands and godly wives. It's hard to hear. It's hard to think on. It's hard to particularly and precisely articulate. But we all want to labor in such a way as to acknowledge it's in your sight. If there's a husband here who needs correction, let it be known. Let him repent. There's a wife who needs correction. Let it be known. Let her repent. Let her be enriched, well-nourished by your grace. Help us both, sinners in a class of relation, to admit our faults, pursue love and kindness, submission and authority with you as our sight, as our goal, as our reward. And may you add your blessing to our marriages. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Give you just a moment there of thoughtfulness, and we'll respond corporately in just one minute.